um, topic here, tackling domestic violence. Are we winning or losing? And we've heard points to make us think about this. We encourage you to think of your questions now. Come up to the microphone and please remember to state your name prior to your question. And if you do not wish to come to the microphone, but you have a question and you wish to write it down, please write it down and Knut will come around and get your question. Okay, let's welcome back our speaker, Michelle Montgomery. Thank you. Thank you. I did ask how much lunch was, and I was told this is where I pay for lunch. So please be kind. Fortunately, we had a bit of a conversation at the table, so I'll be kind. Your name, please? Uh, Maria Fitzpatrick. And um, one of the things that we did talk about at the table was um, you had mentioned in your presentation about demeaning behavior. And we see demeaning behavior all around us. Uh, and uh, personally, I see that as uh, the lead up to any other kind of uh, violent behavior or disrespectful behavior. Uh, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on how do we deal with demeaning behavior, because we see it right from our uh, parliament all the way down to our homes. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> Thank you for that question. I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the things that um, in my role I'm tasked with is not just dealing with family violence, but also bullying in the workplace. So we do do presentations for specific work sites or organizations around recognizing bullying behavior. And there's a difference between someone who's rude, someone who's mean, and someone who's bullying. So we try to define those things so that if people are really being mistreated in the workplace, they have A, the ability to recognize it, and B, know what to do. So I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is that we need, again, starting at a very young age, educating people about their own entitlements. As an example, yesterday I had a conversation with one of my staff who had been told by another professional person that she had no humanity. And I was crushed because I know this individual, my staff person, and I know how much humanity she has. Not only did this individual say that, but this conversation progressed for another 45 minutes. And I said to her, you know what? You don't ever have to tolerate that. You absolutely have my permission to say, you know what? You're entitled to your opinion, but I don't get paid to be abused, and I'm going to end this meeting right now. And I think sometimes we assume people know that. People who have come from a background where people were regularly demeaned or treated disrespectfully often don't have a sense of their own entitlements. So we need to make sure that our children, our grandchildren, our co-workers, that they do know that they do have those entitlements. I hope that answers your question. So my name is Mark Gettle. I'm just wondering if you have any information on the situation in same-sex uh, relationships and marriages. What kind of information were you hoping for? Well, the, the domestic violence, of course. Uh, are men in same-sex relationships apt 
to abuse their uh, male sex partner the same way or the same proportion as, for instance, in uh, heterosexual relationships? I don't have any hard statistics on that because, again, some of that depends on self-reporting. We There is a suspicion in the professional community that um, men who are in same-sex marriages uh, or relationships and also men who are in heterosexual relationships are reluctant to report because of the shame factor. It's somehow unmanly to have your significant partner demean you. So it's very difficult to um, a, gather that statistic. And in terms of the statistics that the police keep, they don't differentiate between same-sex relationships. And I haven't actually read any studies. We do know that it is, it's occurring in um, LGBTQ relationships, we know that. And there are some special information sheets that are available in terms of the kinds of supports that particular community may need that are different from, from other kinds of relationships, but I don't have any hard statistics on that. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Michelle, for your presentation. Um, in the presentation, you uh, brought up the word several times, prevention. And I, I don't think anybody in this room would disagree with the, the real thing that we have to tackle is a problem this serious uh, through prevention. The part that alarms me is that uh, I feel that we're living in a very violent society. When our prime minister uh, sends off planes to kill people over in Iraq, um, and the following day, newspapers that support him have a headline that now we're, we're really going to be kicking ISIS. Uh, I think that, uh, that the message is going out every day to all our young men, especially, that uh, violence is a great thing. Let's glorify it. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that's a problem where we have to start right at the very top? I, again, I don't disagree. I think that um, as a society, we embrace certain forms of violence. I remember when my children were younger, and uh, you know, growing up, big treat for us was to go to a Disney movie at the theater. So of course, this is a tradition I like to carry on with my own children. And I remember the very first Disney movie I ever took my daughter to was Tarzan. And we left after the first 20 minutes because in that 20 minutes there was a fire that the ship sank and the family barely escaped. A cheetah attacked the family and killed them. And then there was a tr an elephant stampede. And this is intended for very young audiences. And I remember walking out of the theater perplexed thinking, what the hell happened to Disney? <laughs> and yet, I don't think many parents think about it from that critical lens. I have talked to parents who have bought their children video games that are extremely violent, saying, it's just a game. No, it's not just a game. It's like practice for them. Play is children's practice for life. So what exactly is it that you're wanting them to practice here? I'm a little confused. So I do agree that from the top down, but mostly at the familial level, we need to start really thinking about the messages that we're giving our children with respect to things like what's happening in the media. <laughs> Supper table is a perfect place to have those conversations. And you know, kids like talking about stuff like politics, not in social studies, 
But at the family table, they like hearing what adults think about that. And more importantly, they like putting their own two cents in. So I think it's easy to sit back and criticize what the government is doing. And believe me, as someone who works for the government, I'd be happy to have a private, this isn't being taped, is it? Okay. I think the government's fantastic. <clears throat> But should you catch me in the parking lot at Safeway someday, we can talk. Um, I, I think that we have to take our own responsibility for the messages that the children and youth around us are receiving and teaching them to think critically. My son loves video games, Super Mario Kart, and he's 13, so he's at that prime age. He doesn't even want to go to his friend's house who play those super violent things because he just says, I don't like it, it's not fun, and I don't see why my friends think it's fun blowing up cars and killing people. So, but again, those are the messages that he's had heard around the dinner table, so that, I don't know if that really answers your question, but we'll talk at Safeway. Thank, thanks, Michelle, for both your presentation and information and your sense of humor, which I knew would come out uh, in various ways. Mary Shillington. Um, one of the uh, thoughts that people often have that the family violence and the perpetrators are not like us, they are people from poverty or immigrants or whatever. Uh, and I remember as a counselor working with a woman who had worked in family violence, knew family violence, was in relationship with an RCMP officer, and it was only when she read a book that she realized all the stuff that he was, much of the stuff he was doing, which was calling her down and names and, and putting her down in various ways was family violence. Can you say some more about, uh, like I know it happens with doctors and mm -hmm. university profs and everybody, mm -hmm. uh, that there's family violence. Can you say a bit more about your experience in that? Absolutely. You know, when I remember a conversation with my hairdresser because we all like to have, well, I don't know about you men, what you tell your barbers, but women, we tell our hairdressers everything. And, you know, she was asking about my job and I was telling her and she said, oh, so it's like native people that you work with. Um, sometimes, but no, it's not, it's not an Aboriginal issue. It's not a new immigrant issue. It's not a poverty issue. It's not an excess of income issue. It, it's, it, covers, it covers the entire span. And I guess what worries me is when I encounter situations, and believe me, there's lots of social situations I have to excuse myself from because I know I'm going to run into somebody that I just know way too much about. It saddens me when it's someone who's actually in a position to make a real difference, and yet their behavior within their own family is, is so demeaning and so degrading to that entire family system. And I get very frustrated when you, know, you talk to victims or offenders and you talk about the impacts that it has on the kids and they'll say, well, the kids are always asleep. Really? Because we all know that you know, in those relationships that are that toxic, it only happens after 10 o'clock at night. It only gets bad once the kids are asleep. There's, there's a vibe that goes on in that family that those children are so tuned into, and I could go on for hours about children's brain development and how constant exposure to even 
mild domestic violence changes their brain structure and their response systems sometimes for life. And I'm sorry, I totally forget what your question was, Mary. <laughs> Did I answer it? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Well, you know, just to, go ahead. Just to add that, they say that one, a very, I believe, conservative statistic is that one in ten women in her lifetime will be exposed, directly exposed to family violence. So look around the room and do the math. And it's, you know, they say one in four children, or one in, one in ten children, same statistics, one in ten children is impacted by family violence. So when I present to teachers, if you've got a classroom of 30 kids, there's potentially three children in your classroom who bring family violence to school with them every day. But how many children in your classroom do you think are impacted by family violence? 30. Because those kids are distracting in the classroom. They're quite often aggressive out in the schoolyard. They can be very demanding of a teacher's attention. So it becomes very pervasive. So it is everybody's problem. Deborah LeBeau. Thanks, Michelle, for talking about a very difficult topic and making it interesting and uh, helping us to realize maybe where we can do better in our own homes. And I just, one of the points you made talked about uh, hitting a plateau yes. with the increase. And I know I heard a, a CBC presentation that was similar. They weren't quite sure, but they, there was some speculation about uh, the crime rate, and, and it has hit a similar plateau, and the speculation that this person was, was saying was that perhaps it had to do with the legalization of abortion, that we had smaller fam or we had less unwanted children, and uh, possibly family size might factor into some of, of the uh, family violence as well, and I'm wondering if you thought that might be applicable because th that the, the date that that was that uh, legalized abortion came into place because there was like a 20-year gap between when you would see a difference when these adults that were having fewer children possibly mm -hmm. that were children of violence them themselves Wow I, you know I don't know that I would want to gonna say well there we go I don't know that I would want to speculate about that because uh, <clears throat> family violence doesn't only happen in, in homes where there are children. Um, family violence happens everywhere. It happens with elderly people. It happens with, as we heard earlier, very young people. Um, is it because there are fewer people, children being born into violent families? I don't know about that because, as I said, it's not sort of those stereotypical families that are the only ones that are involved. One of the reasons I like to think that our, our rates of family violence has plateaued is that because we're actually doing a better job. I mean, the, the rates were on a decrease, but since then, we've actually really upped the ante in terms of public education and awareness, making sure women who are in abusive relationships have places to go and hopefully know where to go. Um, you know, we speculate all the time about why does Alberta have one of the highest rates of family violence? And there's all kinds of negatives for why that may be, but I think part of it too is because in Alberta we spend a lot of money 
on education and awareness, on prevention, on support services, which I would like to believe makes it easier for victims to come forward and report because they know that they may get some help. So I, I'm always cautious. I love statistics, and I think they're very visual, but I always like to look at them with an ounce of caution because I think you can interpret a statistic any way you want. I, that doesn't really answer your question either. But Patty Johnson, thanks, Michelle, for your presentation. Yeah. I'd just like to highlight that um, it's more of a comment and maybe a bit more you can expand on it. When you talked about um, child protection and when there's children and either doing some intervention around with the children, and I think that is incredibly important because I, I worked in the field myself. And um, when I was working there, it was in a, its evolution stage. And so can you, I'm wondering if that we, it was in 2004, is that correct? Yes, the new yes. act. Mm -hmm. So that's 10 years ago. So those, it'd be interesting to follow those stats and see what happens to those kids once they've been removed or they've, they're out of that domestic violence. I just wanted to comment on that. Mm -hmm. And the hope for all of those children. Thank you. And that's an excellent comment. Um, one of the things that you, that I did want to bring to your attention is that the difficulty with good prevention work is it takes at least two generations to really see the cost benefit of that preventative work because it's really hard to measure what doesn't happen, right? So we can gather police statistics on how many people were arrested and charged, it's really hard to gather statistics on how many people were never reported in the first place. So um, with prevention work, we talk about that $7 to $1 cost saving, but we also always say we can't really begin to measure whether what we're doing is working for at least 10 years. So you're right, um, in the next little while, we probably will see more studies coming out, really taking a hard look at those statistics in terms of numbers of people accessing shelter beds, numbers of people um, accessing crisis lines, but uh, um, against a per capita. Because it's one thing to just gather statistics, but if you look at how the population in Alberta has grown in the last 10 years, if all you did was took a look at the number of charges that the police laid, well, how many more people are there in Lethbridge now and surrounding area? And the, and the police service took on the Coaldale community as well. So you have to be really cautious. Um, but I know in terms of talking to teachers who are embracing some of this healthy relationship stuff, they're seeing immediate benefits in their classroom. Kids speaking more respectfully, kids being more thoughtful and kind. And, you know, just imagine what we could create if not only were kids being exposed to that and having that reinforced at school, but if it was happening in every home. Kids wouldn't be going out and being disrespectful to each other in intimate relationships because that would be foreign to them, really. Thank you so much for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. One of the things that I'm wondering about when you talked about the plateau and then the increase in 2012, is there, do you believe, a relationship to cutbacks in the amount of money available for services, especially because social services is an area that has had to suffer a lot of cuts. Mm -hmm. and, and 
and it bothers me that we've got money for jails, but we don't have money to prevent people even needing to be mm -hmm. in jail to help them cope with society. So I was wondering if, if you think there's a relationship there to cutbacks. Well, this may not be popular opinion, but personally, in the, in the area of, of social services, human services, particularly in the area of family violence, I would have to say no, because actually there's been a significant increase in the amount of money in Alberta. I can't speak on a federal level, but I know in Alberta, millions and millions of dollars have been put into the area of domestic violence since that roundtable on family violence in 2005. So in the last 10 years, in fact, I tried to do a bit of math, but I am a social worker, so even, you know, if they told me how much lunch was, it would have taken me 10 minutes to get that out of my wallet, but. Um, there's been enormous attention paid to the amount of money going to this, knowing again that those prevention dollars do pay off, but not just in prevention. There's very specialized offender treatment programs in most communities in Alberta now. There's money being funneled to specialized domestic violence courses. The amount of training that police officers receive now specific to domestic violence is huge. They used to get maybe an hour spent during their recruitment stage. Now they get a week of training very specific to domestic violence. Um, child protection workers get very specialized training. Uh, we offer a family violence and bullying 101 to community agencies so that they can understand just the basics of what's different about a relationship that's embroiled in family violence that may be different from other kinds of issues that families struggle with. So I think we're doing a good job of getting enough money. Whether or not those resources specifically are effective, again, it's kind of a wait and see. But I, I can't say that I feel like there have been cutbacks in that area, no. My name is Kurt Peterson. Thanks, Michelle coming here today. Um, we spoke a little bit at the table about why do uh, many women, especially I think, uh, go back to abusive relationships after the fact? Again, I could probably talk to you all day about that. I have a slide that I use in a lot of my presentations called why don't or why can't women leave? And there's about 14 different bullet points on there. And, and that's not to say that that's a finite list. Love is the number one thing that women will report in terms of either not leaving or returning, is that they actually love their spouse, their significant other. And that, when you're in a healthy relationship, that's hard to wrap your head around. But don't forget, something brought these two people together initially. And if she grew up in a violent home, or he did, that's what they think a relationship looks like. They don't know that there's another way to do that. Children is the second biggest reason that they will stay. And again, that may sound odd to us, like why would you want your children growing up in that environment? Kids love their parents. My background is in child protection, and I apprehended in my career more children that I care to confess to in terms of removing them from their parental care and out of some absolutely horrendous, horrendous situations. I can't think of one child who didn't want to go back home. Not one. Didn't matter that they were in a foster home, that 
might have been a nicer, cleaner, bigger house, a more comfortable bed that they didn't have to share. Meals were on the table. Nobody yelled at them. Nobody hit them. They loved their parents. So that's one of the second things that keeps women there. And then there's the whole host of things. Maybe she's never worked outside the home and has no idea how she would support herself and her children. Maybe culturally she's been told or, or belongs to a religion that believes the bonds of marriage are the be-all and the end-all. There's just so many things that keep women there. And it's really, when we say, why don't women leave or why can't women, why, why won't they leave? We're presuming that they have a choice. Believe me when I tell you, in their world, it doesn't feel like there's a choice in that moment. And they do need lots and lots of support, sometimes to even have the courage to con contemplate leaving. And that's why things like outreach services are so important, to help her see that if you do feel like you need to leave, there are people who will help you find financial help. There are people who will help you find housing all kinds of things that she's, she's maybe has no idea where to how to even start looking for a job. Maybe she went straight from mom and dad's home to her partner and has always been financially provided for and, and never worked outside the home. It's just, it's again, it's so complex. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Henry. My name is Henry Heinen. I have three observations to make. One is what you just finished talking about. Maybe you can comment on how often children internalize the uh, relationship having gone awry and they often blame themselves as kids. Uh, maybe you can expound on that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, since we're not in the parking lot, maybe you can also expand a little bit on the whole women's shelter that have been established in the last X number of years across the province, which I think is a good thing. And thirdly, maybe you can expand a little bit on the relationship between the Lethbridge Police Services and Children's Services in terms of when there is an abusive situation that a social worker goes along with the policeman mm -hmm. because prior to, say, so many years ago, the children were cowering in the bath the bedroom and, and no one took care of them. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your presentation. Thank you. What was the first question? <laughs> um, maybe I'll, I'll work backwards. With the regional police, for about the last 10 years, uh, a little bit longer actually, we've had an agreement with them where we've actually had a minimum of one social worker actually housed at the police station. Anytime police get called out, they have to, uh, to a domestic violence situation. Whether there were children present at the time of the incident or not, if they know that children reside in that home, an automatic referral comes to children's services, usually through that person, person stationed at the police station. And then we make a determination whether it meets our threshold for a child protection situation or not. This, the, the real beauty of that position at the police station is that police officers will actually come to the social worker and say, hey, I got called out on this call last night. And I don't know, but here's what was happening and what do you think? So it's not just a question of, oh, yeah, I know this is one of those files that has to be referred, but they're wanting more information. They're wanting to understand the dynamics in these situations. And there are some cases as well where depending on the situation, the police may actually contact us prior to going out to the home and take a social worker with them because they know we're going to be involved anyway. Let's all deal with this together at the same time. So it's really um, a wonderful partnership that we have and something that both agencies will tell you that we, we embrace wholeheartedly. 
The question about the women's shelters, um, funding to women's shelters has increased by leaps and bounds. Um, I talked about 1974, the first women's shelter opened. It was about in the early 1980s that government began funding, but the amount of funding initially that governments, that the Alberta government was providing to women's shelters was very paltry. Um, in fact, um, one of the things that I read yesterday was that, I think it was in 1984, 1985, there was a five-bed um, youth residential facility that was getting the same funding annually from the government as a 24-bed women's shelter, which basically we're saying those women and their children aren't quite as important as these children that we have in care. But again, if you look at it from a preventative standpoint, there's a good argument to make that really our money would be better spent in this 24-bed facility. So we have increased uh, funding significantly. I think um, shelter workers are still sadly underpaid, but they're certainly making a much more competitive wage than they were when they were entirely privately funded. And then again, enhancing those outreach positions um, to, provide, to provide that extra layer of support because that safety for those three weeks that women are in shelter is very important, but three weeks is just a hiccup. And there's way more than they need than just safe haven for those 21 days. And the first question was <coughs> children in abusive relationships feeling, uh, blaming themselves for the relationship. Right, that internalization. Um, you know, there's, it depends on the age and stage of development, how children, it does, across the spectrum, their entire developmental um, stage, they're impacted. But where you see the most impact in terms of that internalization and blaming themselves is where we see those kids being very egocentric, that two, three, sometimes four-year-old stage where the world is about me. So if something good happens, it's because I'm great. If something bad happens, it's because I'm bad. If, uh, if it's my birthday, everyone should celebrate. So that tends to be when we really see children reacting like this is my fault. However, the impacts of that are very long-lasting. Um, it goes well beyond just their developmental stages and into their adult years. And I'll just, can I, do I have time for one example? Quick example. I worked with a woman years ago who was a social worker. She herself had grown up in the system. She, her biological mother was a prostitute who, she, this child was brought into care permanently at about three or four years of age, um, was eventually adopted, but adopted into a family that unfortunate had, unfortunately had its own issues. She ended up back in care, and by the time she was 15 or 16, was living on the streets. At some point, turned things around for herself. She managed to get a university education. She became a child protection worker. She was a really good child protection worker. She and I became really good friends. And she certainly had a lot of self-awareness about the baggage that she carried around with her. But just to demonstrate how your brain can be wired certain ways, uh, as I said, we became really good friends. And I called her up one day just to see if she wanted to go for coffee, and I said, Hi there. And she said, who is this? I said, it's, it's Michelle. Oh, I didn't know who it was. Her brain was so wired to continually assess for threat and danger that just a casual phone call from a friend had her assessing. Is this someone I know? Is this someone who's a threat to me? 
those pathways in the brain are very, very difficult to change, regardless of how committed you are to that, how much help you get. It's very, very difficult to completely retrain your brain. So those are the kinds of things that these kids walk around with all the time. And I guess, speaking of time, I'm out of time. <laughs> Join with me in thanking Michelle for her great presentation.